calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, cell phones are off. Let me just make sure every. Yep, no notifications or FaceTimes. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Evelyn and this is Reppin. Thank you always for being here. Guys, I'm only a few away from hitting my 100th episode. It has been an amazing ride, but I need your help. I need some ideas on how to mark this occasion. So DM me some ideas, okay? Now today, I have a dynamic artist who's breaking all of the rules. Imagine a classical violin mixing with the beats of hip hop. It is a fusion, so awesome and innovative, it will redefine your musical experience. Truly an extraordinary talent who turned her challenges into huge success. From growing up as a mixed race kid in Lincoln, Nebraska, to finding solace and stability in the melodies of her violin, her journey is nothing short of remarkable. But here's a twist. She didn't just stop at classical music. Oh no, she ventured into the uncharted territories of hip hop, blending genres with a fearless spirit. One that was met with both confusion and criticism. Through divorce, racial identity challenges, and the pursuit of respect, my guest found her refuge in music. But it wasn't without obstacles. Facing stereotypes in the classical world, she carved her own path, infusing her music with soul, innovation, and some really nasty beats. And that's not all. As a film composer and advocate for music education, she's performed alongside artists like Beyonce, Rihanna, to Stevie Wonder, and more. As a composer, she scored the Oscar-nominated documentary short, Stranger at the Gate, and HBO Sports three-part series, Angel City. So keep your ears open for more of her groundbreaking projects set to release this year. I am so excited about this episode. I love her music. And she's an artist who dared to defy the norms, challenge stereotypes, and created a genre all her own. 
Get ready for an episode that's not just music. It's a celebration of resilience, creativity, and knowing and finding power into who you are and the relentless pursuit of dreams. Meet Azima. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am such a huge fan of your work. Oh. Honestly, your music is so incredible. You're a classically trained violinist and you have this incredible fusion where you bring a hip hop, rock, modern, badass <laughs> genre fused with these classical pieces. So I'm a huge fan and I'm super stoked that you're here. I want to start off though, your upbringing and your mixed race. Your dad is Guyanese, your mom is German American, and you grew up in the heartland of America. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Because I grew up in one of the boroughs of New York and even then I felt yeah, like I didn't really sit properly. <laughs> so what was it like for you growing up in Nebraska? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me, Evelyn. I'm just really happy to be here and a huge fan of your work. I think when you're growing up in a place, that's all you know. So it's not like you can really compare it to anything else because your only experience is, oh, I live in a space where most people look like this, but I look like this. Most people do this, but I do this. So that was a lot of my experience. And I think because of that, I turned to music a lot because in many ways, music felt like the constant in my life. And it felt like the thing that could be a friend, could be a sort of stable factor for me. My parents divorced when I was five years old. And there was a period where my mom moved to Illinois and my dad was in Nebraska. So I was flying back and forth by myself on the plane between each parent. And the one thing that stayed the same in that upheaval was music. And I think just for me, always having the violin, always having that to turn to was how I really was able to carve my space in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln has changed a lot, but when I was growing up, it was pretty white and there weren't a lot of mixed race kids. There weren't a lot of black kids in my school. There weren't a lot of Asian kids. It was just a very sort of white space. And again, that has changed. But right. I think there were some stories where I even remember I used to take ballet and I loved ballet very much. And I remember after class, like all of the girls would go to get ice cream and they just never wanted to sit with me. It was like things like that where I just felt very ostracized a lot. Right. Fortunately, I was never like physically bullied or anything like that, but it was more just I found that the way to receive respect by my peers was to be outstanding at music and outstanding in my academics, outstanding in all of these other areas where at least nobody could take that away from me. Let me just paraphrase a little bit. Am I understanding you correctly? Like you had to overcompensate in many different ways in order to A... And I'm and I'm going to make an assumption here, Zima. Feel good about yourself. Yeah. Feel validated, recognized. Yeah. And it's interesting because I wasn't physically bullied either, thank God. But it was just enough to not make me feel included or valued. Yeah. You were ostracized just enough to understand you're not one of them. You're not one of the regulars, right? Yeah. So let me ask you something. Why was it music? 
What was it about music or the violin, that specific instrument that gave you the stability that you didn't really have? Both flying back and forth as a kid. And then also I would imagine, I mean, that in itself is fundamentally unstable, right? And then you go to school and then you don't fit in there. I don't know that you would, did you have any sense of stability at all besides music? I would say for many years, no. My mom did eventually move back to Nebraska and then I was able just to go back and forth within my own hometown, which was immensely helpful. And I think a lot of young people listening to this podcast, I'm sure they can relate because I think regardless of what that situation is within your family structure or your hometown or your school, there's something where you're just like, ooh, I don't quite know how to make of this yet because I'm just a child. I don't really know what's happening. So let me just, the word you used, overcompensate. Yeah, That's 100% what I did. And I think the thing that is positive is that my overcompensation was ultimately towards something productive. I saw a lot of kids whose overcompensation went towards other things like drugs or violence or self-harm. So I'm really grateful for that. Right. But I think to answer your question, the violin, I liked how it was just so beautiful and it felt like I was singing and it felt like, I got a lot of validation through the violin. I remember my mom would put me in fiddling competitions and I would just be winning and like beating adults and like making money. And I just (laughs) really was like, wow, this is super cool. My parents didn't have to force me to practice. I think they just let me do what I wanted with it, which I feel really lucky because a lot of times when people learn the violin, that's not the case, especially when they start as young as I did. They have very you know, strict approaches, which that wasn't my case. I later learned once I started to get out and meet other kids of my age, I was like, oh, wow, like I need to start doing this differently and that differently if I'm really going to compete. And that was a blessing, too. But, right. you know, in the early stages, it was really just this beautiful thing that I was able to turn to and my parents were so supportive of. And I'm really grateful for that. I mean, you picked up the violin at three years old. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn, dude. I don't even think I picked <laughs> up my Barbies at three. That's crazy. Yeah. And speaking of expectations and stuff, as a kid, and I'm Chinese and Cantonese, but I was born in New York City. My mom had hopes for me to play classical piano. Yeah. And God bless my mother. She really put a lot of money into it, but I could not do it. The discipline and classical music for a six-year-old was like, oh my God, I'd rather just comb my Barbie's hair or something. I mean, I did a lot of that too. But three years old. (laughs) Yeah, but... You picked up the violin at three and you loved it. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. One of the many themes that I tackle on this show is stereotypes. And when you talk about violin, the stereotype of violin is this sort of elite, prestigious, expensive, yeah, sophisticated instrument. Seriously, dude, I don't even know if I picked up a crayon at three. <laughs> I really need to go back and look. You picked up a violin, okay? And I have to say this too, from what I understand, you also studied uh, biochemistry, pre-med major, and you focused in um, math, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean this in the most loving and respectful way. You are a nerd. Oh, yeah, fully. I embrace it. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm like, you know what? I'm honored. No, that's great. Serious accolades. You were like the kid that my parents wanted because I failed math three times. I was like, I'm so funny. It's so true. I could show you my report cards. It was disgusting. But let me ask you this. So here you are, mixed race, no stability, and then you pick up an instrument that is seen as a high-class instrument. What was that like when you started playing this? And what were some of the things that you were getting and feeling? The beauty of being a child is you're just ignorant. So I really had no idea about any of the stereotypes that I was going to face down the road. Mm. My parents, they like tell this story of, I don't know, I was maybe like five or something. And I had been studying for a year and a half at that point, and I, you know, was like pretty good. And there was a recital, and everybody went to the low step to play the recital. They would like rent out a church, and all the kids would come and play the recital. And I like stepped to the highest step and played my piece. And it brings chills to me now as an adult because I think there wasn't an awareness of racism or stereotypes or classism or advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. It was just a girl who loved the violin and wanted to play her heart out and was like, why wouldn't I go on the highest step? Right. Everybody is on the low step, but I've worked really hard and I want to be on the highest step. That was the kid that I was. And honestly, I feel like after my teenage years and as I entered early adulthood, I really had to work to find her again because so many things happen where I think we stuff that down. Like stuff down that part of ourselves that is just limitless. And to answer your question, yeah, I first became aware of this in fifth grade. I remember I auditioned for the orchestras, like the citywide orchestra. And we did the audition and we got back the results and I was sitting third chair and I was like, 
well, I know I'm ahead of these other two people. Like, you know, I was doing Suzuki and I was in this book and they were only in that book. And I was like, dad, this doesn't make sense to me. And my dad was like, look, you're black, right? This is going to happen and, and you just have to be the best. You have to be better than the best if you're going to be taken seriously. And that was the first time I really was aware that there was something, an obstacle that I didn't really understand. I couldn't really comprehend it, but I was the first time I realized there was an obstacle there. So I went to my teacher and I said, can I like re-audition or something? And she's like, well, yeah, we have this thing called the challenge process, which is where I'll challenge second chair and it'll be a blind audition. We record it on the cassette, tape A, tape B, and the kids vote. So I challenged second chair and I unanimously beat second chair. Then I challenged first chair and I unanimously beat first chair. And then I just never lost that seat again until I graduated high school and went to college. And that moment was something that I still to this day turn back to because it's not like it's right or wrong or good or bad. It just is. And I think sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in how unfair things are when for me, it's much more effective just to take action and just to be more prepared and more trained and more, I don't know, I, I think I've, I see the difficulty as something just to overcome and something to persevere mm. and that just making me a better artist and human being and a more nuanced person. That was a really big moment for me, um, fifth grade orchestra. <laughs> if I'm ever wrong in terms of my assumptions or what I'm hearing, Definitely correct me, okay? Totally. But going back to what you were saying, when you climbed up to the top of the steps and you performed and you're like, yeah, I've worked really hard. I'm going to go do my thing. And you felt limitless because you didn't know as a kid what racism or being separated or different mm -hmm. or all of these c categories that were labeled, be it gender or race or whatever the candy wrapper is, right? That we're all wrapped in. Mm -hmm. So to the point where you did feel the first time that you were different mm -hmm. and you were seen and treated differently based on societal labels and based on the surface values, not on your talent, because your talent, girl, like you on fire, <laughs> okay? So from the time that you felt limitless to the time that you felt that resistance and that you were different and you had to work 10 times harder than anybody else, what was that like for you? How did it hit you? And when you did learn that lesson, how did you take that now and you're still actively using that? Yeah. You think at fifth grade, I was just really shocked. And I feel so blessed that I really encountered this pretty late. I think a lot of people encounter it much sooner. It was the first time where, you know, when you take a test, it's like it's right or it's wrong. Or when you run a race, it's right or it's wrong. I was on the swim team and I was a horrible swimmer. I was undoubtedly like the worst swimmer on the team. So the fact that I was losing, it just made sense. But this was the first time where I was like, there is no right or wrong. It's really just music is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. I think that moment was really a shock for me, but one that I'm really grateful for because it, I walk with it still to this day. I want to try to push past myself every single time mm -hmm. instead of it being about like, oh, who's in front of me? Now it's really about how can I keep beating myself and pushing my own expectations and my own limitations? There are obviously the societal constraints, but for me, I have 
found a level of success where I don't have to deal with that in the way that I used to. Okay. And now it's really about how am I going to keep pushing myself? Because I think it's very easy to sort of get stagnant and to rest and to... Yeah, be comfortable. Lose the drive and lose the discipline. Yeah, and and be comfortable. And and then that's just not who I am. That's not something I believe in, regardless of my race or my gender or any of these sort of identities that we cling to. I think in many ways, I still use that same story, but instead it's just like, I imagine I'm sitting in all the chairs. I'm sitting in first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And it's like, I just want to keep challenging different versions of myself. And by getting to the top, that is my activism. That is how I help break the stereotype and uplift other black and brown players and other girls and other people from non-traditional families and homes that maybe lack stability. That's how I change things. So I think there's there's been a shift where I am now competing really with myself as a form of activism. Okay, here's where I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I'm all about what you said, and I am of that mind as well. I'm always about growing and pushing myself. The minute I feel a little too comfortable, I get a little nervous. But here's where I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. I still feel like I have to allocate some of my energy and bandwidth to manage and navigate the optics that society puts on me and limits me because I have to fight harder to break through the biases, Mm -hmm. the stereotypes, the images, and to fight for those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So as much as I would like to say 100% of me is competing with myself, pushing myself to be better, and I do that. Mm-hmm. I can't negate the fact that there is a big part of me that still has to grapple with the shit that society puts on me. Do you feel that way? Or are you sort of like blocked everything out and you're all in just for yourself? You know, it, it, I think it really depends on on what day we have this interview because <laughs> right now in this moment, I'm in my home and I'm in my studio and um, I feel so safe here and I feel so like seen and heard and all those things. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of that. And also I'm I'm right now working on a film. So I, I've been creating all morning and I'm not really aware of that. I think right now my bandwidth is entirely on like, hey, the artist side. Yeah. But when I go into a meeting and when I am submitting a pitch for something, I'm so used to that awareness. I can't imagine life without that awareness. I can't imagine what it is to not have to think about, oh, am I going to be perceived as too young or too old or too black or not black enough or too feminine and too whatever, girly or any sort of bucket, you know, you could put in. And I think to me, privilege is never having to think about that. Yes. I think there's a group of people in which they never have to think about it. Don't think that's just excluded to race or gender. I think that is real privilege to walk into any room and not have to like go over and run the tape. Yeah. Like, I hope that wasn't received that way or that way. Yeah. But right now in this moment in the state where I'm having this interview, I'm just, I've been creating all morning. I got up at 7 a.m. and I've just been writing. And so right now I don't feel that. And I think I'm learning to be able to at the very least turn that off so I can create. Fair. I find that it's impossible for me to create if I am being self-critical, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I completely get what you're saying, Evelyn. And unfortunately, yeah, that's very true for me. 
Yeah. But I will add add to this, and this is my own sort of uh, method to my madness. And I agree, privilege, that's one big part of it. Be able to walk into anywhere and not even be aware that exists is not something that I will ever know in my life. But I will say this, I try to use that to make me a little bit scrappier because Mm. you're going to take shots at me. I'm always going to be the underdog. Cool. Okay. I understand this position that I'm in. I'm going to own it. And it's a world that I, I know so well, unfortunately, Yeah. that, okay, hit me. I can take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And listen, it certainly depends on the day. Yeah. Because there are some days where I'm like, I'm too damn tired to take those hits. Yeah. But most of the time, I'm unfortunately in the same position you are where that's not something that we will ever know mm-hmm. to walk into a room and not know. Yeah. Now, there is something that I wanted to talk with you about, which was being heard and seen. You had mentioned that when you were younger, you didn't feel seen or heard. Now, in some ways, I can understand that because you just described that you didn't have any sort of constant in your life. So nothing really grounded you. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about another example or moment that you felt not heard or seen and how music made you feel seen? A really clear moment. At the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that I did uh, biochemistry in my undergrad and I minored in math. Yeah. And I had every intention of becoming a doctor. And that was really to appease my dad, Mm. who is from Guyana. And, you know, I love my dad so much. The environment he came from is one in which music just isn't a career. And also growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, I didn't see successful creatives. If you were a creative, you were the band teacher or you played in a local symphony, you know, a part-time job and not a full-time job, or you really weren't considered successful. It wasn't until I moved to New York City that I saw the life of a successful creative. Being a musician just wasn't an option. I remember I was in college and I liked studying. I liked academics. I did well in it, but I just felt like I was neglecting a big part of myself. I remember how scared I was to go to my dad. You have to understand that I was you know, very obedient and very um, immigrant households are, are very strict when it comes to like rules and everything. Girl, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I, I know, you know. So it's, <laughs> to be disobedient is, is a big deal. Yeah. And um, I was never the kid to rebel or like have tantrums or sneak out of the house. That just wasn't me. And I told my dad, hey, I want to be a musician and I'm going to go to New York and study. This was the biggest sort of step I had ever taken in choosing myself since that recital where I went to the top step. I had been living a lot of my life just being perfect, playing perfectly and getting perfect test scores and trying to just be the best I could be in quotes. But in that, I was neglecting a huge part of who I am and therefore just wasn't being heard or seen for who I really was. It was really my violin professor in college who was like, look, you can be a star. Just give it a shot. Just go to New York. So I went to the new school and... right. It changed my life. That's when I got to work with Stevie Wonder and Mac Miller and Beyonce and all these amazing artists. And none of that would have happened without that risk and without that step. To anyone listening, it is so scary to like bet on yourself. But I think it is the biggest payoff you can imagine is when you do that. And 
everything that's unfolded in my life, I could not even fathom because I had no concept of that at all. Yeah. That was a really big moment where I felt like it was a, a such a huge fork in the road for my life. Oh my God, you just said so many important things. So the first thing is you said being in Lincoln, Nebraska, you didn't see anybody that could yeah. uh, succeed in the arts and being an immigrant family, arts isn't really something that you can bank on. No. And because of that, it's not something that is encouraged. It's more about stability and getting a practical career, right? Doctor, lawyer, those staples are a part of what the immigrant family would instill in children like us. So in one case, is it safe to say because you didn't see anyone in the arts in Lincoln, Nebraska that succeeded other than the local teacher or something, which in itself is a wonderful job, the lack of representation that you could be this was daunting. Yeah. When you didn't have that, Azima, and you still decided to roll the dice and take that risk and go to your father and say, hey, I want to go and be a musician in New York City. And you didn't have that representation. What gave you the courage to, in your words, bet on yourself? Yeah, it was honestly my mentors. And I think Every big step I've made, there's been a mentor either in front of or behind that step. I don't know. But I was really fortunate. I went to the University of Nebraska and the Chiara String Quartet was there. They just happened to have a residency there. And I think so much of my life, I've had these just coincidences that have just been incredibly beneficial. And, you know, they were Juilliard trained and Grammy award winning. And they were a part of this program that just dropped them in Nebraska to help promote classical music and bring representation. Right. So I saw these young, amazing players and Young Yoon, she was the one who said, look, you can do this. That belief and that confidence was so big that it filled me because I didn't have that confidence that I could do it. Right. Where I am in my life, it's like, how can I pay that forward? I think we never know who might need just the encouragement from us or the uh, push to bet on ourselves. But she really, really encouraged me. From what I've seen in my life, I think life is like a GPS. It's like, even if you keep turning wrong, you're going to end up where you're supposed to be. <laughs> okay. I, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bad driver in LA and I'm always like getting lost. But the GPS just always gets me where I'm supposed to be. Somehow you always get there. And I think my destiny to be a musician and an artist was so strong that I still would have gotten here somehow. She just kind of gave me a more direct path. So... It was really her. It was really just my mentor who encouraged me to live this life. That's amazing. And I'm glad that you did take the risk. Now, another thing that I keep seeing thread through, which I think is interesting, is not only did you pick up the violin and you're classically trained, but your style of music and artistry is really such a blend and fusion of classical, hip hop, pop, rock. It is awesome. Can you talk about how you sort of went that way? And I know this because I've done my research. You've also gotten a fair amount of shade from the classical world (laughs) for not, for quote unquote, taking these classical pieces and ruining them in some ways. Maybe that's too hard. I don't know. I just remember reading this. Can you talk about how you took 
violin and made it your own. Yeah. Been fusing these different genres. And what's going on with this like blowback that you're getting? (laughs) Yeah. So I think back to the theme of being seen and being heard. I love classical music so much. It is, it feels like home for me, but even in that, I still felt like, oh, can I get closer to myself? Can I get deeper into who I am and what my voice really is? What is that voice? I didn't really know. And it was in that process that I started to just experiment and write and create. And, you know, the classical curriculum is one in which you're really playing what's already been played and you're perfecting it as to the most perfect level that you can. It's very creative, but you're not generating something new or original. That's just not a part of the training. Right. And I remember I'd be in lessons and sometimes I would like do a cadenza and I would like add stuff in there. They're like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I was like, oh, I just thought it'd be nice. I'm like, don't, that's not what Brahms wrote, right? And of course, now I think there are some more teachers who are really trying to be more intentional about including that innovation, which is so important. When I was teaching, I would try to do that as well to young classical players. But I've always felt a little bit scolded and like, don't do that. Do it that way. Or that's a little too much of a slide. That's a little too soulful. And I said, you know, what What if I just decided to experiment with my own thing? I can still do classical, but let me just try to experiment with my own thing. And it was really in that process of experimenting that I found this new voice and this new genre that opened even more doors for me. Even though I wasn't aware of it, it was another sort of betting on myself to say, I love this, but let me just see what I can do here if I like add a little of this spice or that spice and mix it up and then do that or do that. And it just really created this whole new thing that mm-hmm. while it took off, there was also some backlash. And I think, honestly, from this perspective, I think the backlash is very flattering when you are doing something disruptive, like you're going to get some negative feedback. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's just so resistant and contrary to the classical training to take a Paganini piece and put it over a nasty beat. That's blasphemous. That's something that's seen as disrespect to this type of music, especially the music of Bach, who was writing music for the church. So it's not just a song. It's music that's rooted in like a context and a history and sometimes even a spiritual and religious tradition. Mm-hmm. So I get where they're coming from. I will say now it has subsided a bit, but, you know, there will still be here and there like, why can't you just leave this alone? But then there's so many more people who are like, I love this. And as a matter of fact, can you play on my album or do this or do that? And that's just great. But I think to anybody, you know, listening I think shade and haters is really just, it's just a part of it. And I think it's something where I think the more disruptive that you are, the more you're going to get of that. And it's a good thing. Just keep going, you know? Yeah, but how did you not get disheartened by it? You were talking about how music was a way that you found your voice, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're not self-realized or even when you are fully self-realized, when you have a community of people telling you, that this is not good and A and B and C and all these other things. Yeah. For me, I don't know about you. I sometimes hold on to that 1% that's telling me something critical versus something positive that I'm trying to do. 
So even for the most confident, comfortable, and self-realized people, it can dance on that insecurity and Mm self-doubt. For you, and I don't know if this is true, but you are still trying to find your footing, Mm -hmm. trying to find your voice. Don't even know what that is, really. And then you've got all of these people talking about, what are you doing? This is terrible. This is blasphemy. How do you not get shaken and realize, I'm going to keep going? Uh, it was hard. I even remember I was in an orchestra and I was appointed concertmaster of the orchestra and somebody in the orchestra threatened to leave because of what I was posting online with with this, you know, sort of like hip hop classical fusion. You know, it really hurt. And I think there was a period, especially when I went viral um, a few years ago, like really viral, I had anxiety. I was really afraid to post. I was afraid to like do anything. I was like, oh God, I'm going to be upsetting somebody. I can't win. Right. As I'm getting older, I really put restrictions on my social media use. I have somebody run it for me. I create all of my content and everything, but I really try to minimize my time just because I feel that it's not good for my mental health. And I need to take a break when I'm doing something creatively and I'm thinking, oh, how will this person think about it? Or how will that person think about it? And that for me, it means, all right, as a you got to like detox. It's like my boundary into my internal space is too penetrable. Does that make sense? Yeah. They've invaded in your personal and creative space. Yeah. And I am not the most confident person in the world. I have a lot of insecurities and I have a lot of things that I wish I did better or things I I want to do or, you know, I'm just a normal human being. I have learned, though, what it takes for me to feel my best and what it takes for me to feel completely fortified. And I notice that if there are too many voices inside of me, Mm -hmm. I will creatively shut down. And that has happened to me before. I was with a major label for a few years, and it was one of those situations where I hadn't yet found my voice. And because of my success and everything that looked great, I was in a situation where I was creating music that didn't really resonate with me. And Uh I had removed my compass. It was entirely outside of myself. And I'd given it to other people. I was like, oh, you tell me which way is north. And it was one of those situations where once I finished the project, I couldn't write. I was really sad and deflated and lost. Um, The bright side of this is that it led me to film work. So I just began creating and working on films and TV and everything, which was great because there is a North Star. They're like, this is what we need and this is what we want. But I haven't been able to work on my album until really this year. And it's coming along and it's great. But I have sworn to myself, I am never going to forfeit what my North Star is to anyone else ever again. Right. Doesn't matter how much money it is. It's not worth it. And I think to anybody listening, you are the only one who can determine what that is. I just have certain things where I'm like, I cannot do those things because I know I will kind of fall off and lose myself. To your point, when you're talking about innovation, I lost a lot of time, girl, on your YouTube page. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love what you're doing. And look, I'm not 
a part of the classical world. But I will say that, and this is in, in broad strokes, is that anytime there is something new and innovative, the majority of the folks get scared of the unknown, of the new. It's generally met with a lot of negativity. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the death knell to innovation. Yeah. So I think innovation in many ways is you kind of need to go out and push the boundaries as you, as you have. And I love what you're doing because you really are bringing so many different elements like of hip hop into classical music and vice versa. And again, I am not of, of a classical mind, but I will say this, that right now we're living in very much a digital age where it's pop culture driven and a lot of the classical pieces aren't appreciated in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I think if you ask me, classical world, that introducing a new generation to these masterpieces of classical work, it may need a little bit of a new approach yeah. to get it through the door to the new generation so they can develop an appreciation for these classical pieces as they were originally composed. Yeah. But that's not to say what you're doing isn't incredible. I love what you're doing. How would you describe your music? And how would you say the music that you're creating now is who you are? How does that translate? Mm. So I'm working on my album right now. And that is music that no one has heard except for a few people. Yeah. And that music is different than I think what people have heard because I have changed a lot. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it just really depends on what point you ask me that would affect how I describe my music. But right now, I think the common thread of my music that I will notice throughout the different evolutions, it is um, very driven. Um, I love energy. I just like to go. You know, I, I like music that really like beats yeah beats and even if there aren't beats i just like things that sort of like stir the energy and Mm -hmm. propel things i really like that a lot and i mean i love beats and i love programming them and driving bass lines i i think that's something that really resonates with me i also really love virtuosic violin playing i think that's something you always hear is because i work so hard as a violinist i like to flex as the kids say these days you know um and that's something that really comes from hip-hop right you have a, you know, a rap, they're just flexing, like, this is what I got, this is what I do, and that's what I do on the violin, I flex. So I, I think those are some things that are always there. And then the final thing is I I love um, the emotion of, you know, harmony and, and the, the push and the pull. And I think some of the remixes that I've done that people have really gravitated towards, it's because I've re-harmonized them and I've reimagined them in a way where there's just a lot more emotional depth because the lyrics aren't there. Ah, uh. That it's allowed to be a bit more imaginative and dreamy and then you have the violin on top of it. So I think those are some things that are my style. And then, you know, in terms of my playing style, I think you could ask a lot of violinists, but it's a very specific way that I play and something that I've just really had to fine tune really over the past decade. Okay, so I need to go back to this. I always say on this podcast, and this is one of the many reasons why I started this, is as human beings, we're we're more than one thing. <laughs> right. There's nobody that's one thing. 
and most of the time as a human being, you're contradictory things all at once, right? It doesn't make sense always, but you're contradictory things all at once. Yeah. Much like your music, it is more than one thing, right? Right. You've blended different genres. You've pushed past the traditional limits, so to speak. I'm catching you right now. And dude, by the way, not so subtle hint. I cannot wait to hear your album. Thank you. When the hell is that coming out? Oh, man, I'm hoping end of next year. I'm it's for orchestra. So I'm sorry. I'm wait that long. Sorry. <laughs> but I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm very excited about this project. That's just dangled the carrot and just left me there. But here's my thing. I'm catching you right now. How has that music allowed you to find your voice? Oh. What is your voice based on the musical styles that you have right now? Wow, what a great question. As we get older and the bodies of work become more, um, they just grow and there's just more work that I've put out. I think people are really going to see and hear um, the evolution. And I think at each stage, I have written from a place to be heard until now. Mm -hmm. Now, I th this project that I'm working on is much more subdued. I, I think it's less of, hey, this is me. This is what I do. It's more just like, this is me. It is something that feels really nice. It feels really nice to be here. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I'll be in five years or 10 years. You know that it just changes. But at each point, my music has very clearly articulated who I am and who I want to be and who I am becoming at each stage. Right now, this is just the most sort of chilled and grown I've been, which which is how it should be, right? Like, I'm not 21 year anymore, you know? Right. <laughs> I, I would hope that would be the case. And I think that's just something that with all composers and with all artists, you see this super exciting evolution of, of their voice. And I think your question of like, how does that highlight who you are at any given moment? That's a question I would love to ask of so many people. Uh, I think you should do that, Evelyn, because that is a great question. Thanks. I'm going to come back to you in five months and ask you the same thing. <laughs> I heard something that you said that I thought was really interesting. You said back then you were creating music that says, hey, here, here I am. This is what I can do. Right. And now... Am I right to say that what I'm hearing now is you're not doing it for anyone now? You're doing it because you're embracing who you are and it's for you. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think that is that's really you really nailed it. I think that has been the shift. This is just because I want to do this. Nobody's telling me what the direction is or what's marketable or what I'm just saying this is me. Right. It is in a way more terrifying because there's nothing to hide behind. I get that. But then on the other side, it just feels so good to be... It's like wearing a really comfortable pair of jeans that you've had forever. That's just how it feels right now. And um, I'm really grateful to finally be here. Before you were doing it to kind of prove yourself to yourself and to everybody else yeah. and to make an announcement. Yeah. Now you just yeah. are. And that's a exactly. huge seismic shift, even though it might not sound huge. like one. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier in our conversation where there was a music company, you kind of relinquished some of your control and rights, right? right? 
And now you're saying I will never compromise my creative compass. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the music world. I'm in production and in television. I think this goes beyond entertainment and media. Mm-hmm. I think as human beings, as we navigate this chaotic, insane existence, right. there's a lot of compromise that's being asked of us right. on many different levels, our values, our truths, our identities, our priorities, um, and certainly in your case, creatively. How are you going to protect this understanding and realization that you will not compromise or expose or relinquish or even negotiate your creative compass? Yeah, I think a lot of it is the work that I'm doing on myself, Mm. Um, just my own faith practice where I am really just trying to center every single day and just check in with myself. And I did not do that. I think there was a period in my life where I was doing everything to sort of quiet those voices. Whereas now, and I don't do this every single day. Sometimes I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be told, hey, this isn't really in alignment with who you are. But okay, I'm finding even though it might be a slower journey, trusting that it's going to be a greater outcome because it's just more true to who I am. Mm -hmm. After going through what I've gone through and working with great artists and being in bands and being with major record labels, it's that wasn't where my happiness was. It looks great on paper, but I was the least happy in all of those situations. That is something where life is short and I just don't ever want to ignore myself for the Instagram pic or the additional line on my biography, you know? Right. One of the major thread throughs that we've had during this conversation is not being heard or seen. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that right from the jump when you were growing up, not having that, um, not having any sort of constant. Again, I'm assuming music is very parallel and similar to production and media on my end of the world where there is nothing that is stable or constant and you're constantly questioned and self-doubt and insecurity is often tested rigorously. I mean, is it safe to say that you are self-realized? Is it safe to say that you have found your voice and you know who you are? And even though you may even, uh, Recently, today, and going forward, you might find yourself in situations that you won't be heard by people. Yeah. But you know who you are. How are you going to negotiate that? Because look, as much as we'd like to say we're both women, we're both women of color, Mm -hmm. both in a really competitive industry that is fickle. Right. And filled with a lot of strong personalities, both good and bad. So how are you going to deal with future situations where you go into a place, you're still not being heard or recognized? You know who you are. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's that is a really interesting question because that still happens a lot. Yeah, I still find that I feel misrepresented or misunderstood or 
mislabeled or all of these things. I think that happens a lot. I'm not just a Black woman. I'm not just a violinist. But I think it's human tendency is to put things into categories, into buckets. Yeah. And the more awareness that I discover about who I am, it's like what you just said. It's we don't fit cleanly into buckets. What I'm learning is that is where that person is. And I have a voice and I can speak up and say, hey, actually, no, like this is who I am. You can talk about it, or but this is really who I am. And I won't forget there was a situation a few years ago where I went to a red carpet with someone and basically the person came up, okay, what's her name? They gave my name and then they said, she's an influencer. And that just really hurt because I'm not an influencer. I mean, I do so much more than that. And afterwards, I I found myself though in that situation, I had gone mute. I wasn't able to say, well, I'm actually a composer and a violinist and I've been on profit and all these other things. Right. But I lost my voice in that moment. To me, those situations are always going to happen. It's how I react to them that that is hopefully changing as I just become more aware. And it's scary, especially when that person is a studio head and, you know, a man and maybe they're white and yeah, they have a lot of power or something. Yeah. It's hard to really speak up in those situations, but that is something that I'm just really working, tapping into more quickly. Yeah. Before I ask you to sign us off, in terms of your ability to increase diversity, not just in the classical space, in the musical space, and now you're scoring films, your ability to increase and push the limits and fuse different things that may seem like they don't go. Right. What does that say about you? I think that says... That's who I am. I think my entire existence has been not feeling like I quite fit in. So let me just sort of like patch together this thing. And then that's me. I mean, I'm I'm mixed race. I, I grew up in very different homes and households. And, you know, my mom was incredibly poor while my dad was middle class. And it was like just my whole life was just juxtaposition and like contrast. And I think I am actually most comfortable here. I think this is something that it really speaks to me to not fit in any box cleanly. And I think my experiences are what shape my music. I Maybe that's how it should be. I don't know. I think there was a period in which I wished that I could just be one thing, but the older that I get, I'm like, bring on the nuance and bring on the contradictions and bring on the clash and the dissonance. And it doesn't always need to be pretty. That's the most, the best and most amazing things in this world are not just one thing. Please keep innovating. Thank you. Please keep breaking boundaries and please keep being yourself. Oh, thank you. Now I need to ask you to sign us off. Okay. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Azima and I represent, um, okay, I am Azima and I represent the unexpected. What a trailblazing artist. Azima, thank you for sharing your story with us and for your time. Remember, her music is not just a sound. It's a testament to resilience, breaking barriers, 
and creating something uniquely your own and embracing your authentic self. Azima is such an innovative and wonderful artist. I love what she's doing. Check her out, get her music and follow her career. I'll have all of her links in the show notes for you. Now, let me know what you liked and walked away with from this episode. I'd love to hear. And if you liked what you heard, it's really easy to support this series. All you got to do is share, subscribe, download, and leave a review. I'll even have a buy me a coffee link in the show notes. Reppin is not an easy show to produce. It's been a real labor of love. And I'm honestly stunned that I'll be hitting my 100th episode soon. So please DM me, tweet, and share your ideas with me on how I can mark this occasion with you. Thank you to you, the listeners around the globe, for choosing to spend your time with me here. Your support and listenership truly means the world. Thank you also to my inner circle for their work, time, and love. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. So you know what to do, right? Well, just in case you forgot, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.